Our passage this evening is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll start off this chapter and we'll get a glimpse into heaven. But then the middle of the chapter is about hardship in our lives. It's about suffering. So this is heaven to hardship. Verse 1. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I'll ask a series of questions, and the first one is, how are braggarts silenced? There were some self-promoters, there were some deceitful workers that had come into the church at Corinth. They loved to talk about themselves, they loved to brag and say that they were the leaders that the people should be following. What are some of the things that they bragged about? About their lineage, they said, we're from this tribe or that tribe. They bragged also about the work that they supposedly did for God. They bragged about their suffering. But it's also clear here that they bragged about visions and revelations that they supposedly had. And so Paul is going to point out how far he has surpassed them in these areas of visions and revelations. He talked about his sufferings and also his labors in Christ in the last chapter. But now these visions and revelations, and the point here is not to build himself up, but the point is to silence these braggarts. The point is to silence these false teachers, the deceitful workers, because how could they possibly say that they had done great things compared to what the Lord had done through Paul? So today, the situation in the church is similar. There are crafty deceivers. They, they want to build up their, their so-called work, their measly work, and sometimes that work is even a false work. It's a fake work, and that's to be exposed. All the while, the faithful are getting it done day in and day out. The consistency and the sacrifice um, enable us to identify those who are truly leading for the Lord. So how are the braggarts silenced in this case? By Paul saying, what have you done compared to this, right? Now, once again, the point is not to lift himself up. It's to silence them to say, stop talking about yourself. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. This is Paul speaking in the third person. And you might wonder, why, why is he talking about, like, I, I know this guy, or I, I know somebody like this? Well, because the point is to silence the people who were bragging, not to bring the attention to himself. We learn later that this man that he's talking about is himself. Because although he needed to point out that he had experienced these revelations beyond any of theirs, it was only to expose their foolishness, not lift himself up. So he says, I know a man. He's not quick to exalt himself, and um, he speaks in, in this manner. I'll ask you the second question. Are we making conjectures despite God's concealing? Do you see that there's some things about these verses 2, 3, and 4, and we just don't know? The Apostle Paul didn't even know. So he had visions, he had revelations, he was caught up into the third heaven. But what does he say here that he doesn't even know? 
He says, I don't know if it was an out-of-body experience or if it was a bodily experience. Who does know? God knows. And he doesn't even say the words, right, that he heard there. He says that they're inexpressible words that wouldn't be lawful for a, a person to utter on this earth. So do you know when you're dealing with somebody and they just love to talk about things in the word of God that the Lord has not made clear to us? This is one of my favorite things. I think that somebody should do a, like a comedy clip on this. It, of course, it wouldn't be me. Like they love to talk about stuff that the word of God has purposefully left cloudy. And in this situation, Paul says, I don't know if I was caught up in, in the flesh or if I was caught up in just my spirit. And they'll say, you know why we know? Well, Paul didn't even know. And you know why we know the words, the inexpressible words that aren't lawful for any man to utter? The, the Bible says here that, that they shouldn't be uttered, that they were inexpressible, right? So there's a caution here against trying to be clear about things that the Lord has purposefully left cloudy. It just gets weird after a while. Now, there are some things that Paul does say here, and it's important that we fix meaning to those so that we're understanding them correctly. The third question, what is the third heaven? Did that catch your, your interest? He does say, I was caught up to this third heaven, and Paul is using common terminology to explain where he was. You see, in those days, the first heaven was referred to as, as the atmosphere, the, the blue sky that we see, right? And the second heaven would be the stars, right? What we see outside our atmosphere and even into our galaxy and sometimes even beyond, the starry sky. But the third heaven is the presence of God, seeing God with your, your eyes, being right before the Lord in his dwelling place of heaven. It says here that he was in paradise, not just the stars, not just beyond the atmosphere, the same word that Jesus used when he spoke to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Not just you'll be with me in the blue sky or in the starry sky, but you'll be with me in the heavenlies, in my throne room. So Paul was caught up into the very presence of God, past the highest heavens that, that we can see. Now this is amazing, 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 isn't it? To think that he was taken up, that he was caught up to the throne room of God Almighty, but it's not a, unheard of, is it? Didn't Isaiah spend time in the throne room of the Most High? And then don't we have the record of the Apostle John in Revelation 4 and 5, where he's in the presence of God in heaven, and he gives us some of the details there of what happened. But Paul says, I was in the third heaven. Now this by far makes the most sense. Some would try to say that our eternal life is going to be spent in places with levels. That's a really dangerous interpretation. So let me give you two examples that you might know of that abuse this mention of, of the third heavens. Muhammad spoke of a supposed vision that he had, and guess where he says it took him? To the third heaven. And he rode upon, he says, his trusty steed, Barak, up into the third heaven, and he gives a very detailed account of what he supposedly saw in an effort to build himself up, to make followers for himself, and to pull followers away from the one true God, using the third heaven as this is 
the place where, where only those who are very, very special, those super apostles go. Great example of a false teacher using this, misusing this reference. Who else misuses the levels of heavens? Well, the Mormon people do. And I still call them Mormons because I'm a Latter-day Saint. Aren't you? That's just a great name. It's too bad that they've got it. I, I love the name. We're in the latter days. And I'm not trying to be facetious, but you consider what they teach about the levels of heaven. And it's a great misuse of the scriptures. Their idea is that there's the first level of heaven and almost everybody's going to make it into that level. I mean, you have to be a terrible, terrible, unrepentant criminal to not make it into the first heaven. But if you make it into the first heaven, according to them, you'll be single for the rest of your existence, which for some people sounds like a pretty good deal, right? <laughs> but you'll never have a chance to, if you laughed, that's, maybe that says something about you. Did you? No, it doesn't say anything about you. You won't get a chance to populate a planet. You're in the first heaven, right? But what do you have to do if you're going to get to the third heaven? Works, right? So you, you can get to the first level, but you can't make it to the highest unless you meritoriously make it there. You see, it's, it's the heavenlies by works instead of salvation by grace through faith. So it's mentions like this in the, in the Word of God, things that are mentioned like, like this, I should say, they get taken way out of what they originally meant. And, and look, isn't it just like people to, to make heaven be about earning, to make heaven be about levels, to say, I'm going to be one rung above you, and, and I'm going to work really hard. That is not the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not as though God gives you the first heaven, and you got to try to scratch your way to the second and the third. I'm so thankful for that. Freely given by the grace of God. Don't let anybody sway you from that truth. Now, Paul gives us another detail here, and he says that this was 14 years ago that he was caught up into the presence of God to hear these inexpressible words. And we don't have a record of him mentioning this at any other time, but he does give us this time indicator. And if you try to do the date system, you, we can't figure out for sure, but it is possible that 14 years prior to the writing of 2 Corinthians was when Paul was left for dead outside of the city of Lystra. You can read about that in Acts 14. See, a mob came upon him in that city for doing the work of the Lord. They crushed him with stones, and then they dragged him outside the city, and they left him there because they thought he was dead. And then the disciples gathered around him, and the Lord raised Paul up, and he went back into the city. That must have freaked them out. But some say, and it's possible, we can't know for sure, that that was about 14 years before this, and maybe it was an out-of-body experience. We don't know. God knows, right? Um, that could possibly match, match up with this. We don't know for sure. But I do know that the presence of the Lord is a great place of comfort. You think of that often, don't you? That when we see Jesus, the, there won't be any comfort that compares to that. And what would Paul have needed more than anything if he indeed did enter the heavenlies because he was so greatly persecuted 
and then the Lord was going to say, no, I'm going to raise you back up again, he would need great comfort to say, you're going back for round two, right? And you, it's not going to be a short round. Here he is 14 years later ministering the gospel, the comfort of heaven. So the third heaven in the very presence of the Lord because of his love, because of his grace, not by anything that we have done. Good, I'm going fast. I've got a lot of pages tonight. I've got to cover them all. So that was question number three. Verse five. Of such a one I will boast. Yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees above what he sees me to be or hears from me. That last section of the verse makes me ask this question. Do you look for proving character and solid instruction? Is that what you look for? Is that what you look for in others? Is that what you look for in yourself? Paul says, I don't want you to base what you think of me on this vision, on this revelation. I want you to base what you think of me on who you see me to be. What do you see in my life? What kind of character do you see in me? What do I say to you? What do you hear from me? Is it solid instruction? Now consider this, the deceitful and the divisive were in Corinth, just constantly doing commercials for themselves. You know what that's like because of our media. We're great, we're wonderful. As long as we say that a whole bunch of times, you'll probably start to believe it. This is what I did. Let me tell you about another time that I served so well. And Paul is saying that a good leader, a genuine leader, doesn't need to advertise themselves because people see who they really are and what they're really doing. They're right around them. They see the work that God is using them to do. It's apparent. Do you see it? Paul says. I'm going to refrain because I don't want to be measured by a vision. We studied this already, but we didn't go into detail two chapters back. Go to chapter 10, verse 11. It says, let such a person consider this, in 10.11, that we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we also, be in, also will be indeed when we are present. That's a strong statement, isn't it? But that should be the statement of every single servant of God. Like what we wrote, what we taught, what we said to you when we were away, we're living that for you when we're with you. Because proven character is paramount for leadership. Not perfect character, but solid character that continually serves the Lord. We should practice what we preach. In addition to that, is their teaching solid? Because Paul says, don't judge me by my visions or my revelations. What have I said to you? What do you hear? Is it rightly divided? Is it truth? Why would anybody support a sloppy teacher? Let's not base our decisions on, on the woo-woo, the wowy factor, right? But on proven character and solid instruction. Is that who we want to be? Is that who we look to live this Christian life alongside? Now the scriptures go from the vision of heaven to much hardship, and this is verse 7. 
Hopefully you're looking for proven character and solid instruction. But now it speaks here about the thorn in the flesh. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. This is a a long answer to this question. What's the right response to a thorn in the flesh? Paul had a physical ailment, thorn meaning pain, and flesh meaning in his physical body. He had a disease, he had a sickness, or or he had an injury that, that wasn't leaving his body. And we don't know what that physical ailment was for sure. It's not listed for us here in the scriptures. And there's an advantage to us in that that God didn't specify, you know, we, we can make some guesses, but we can't know for sure, that God didn't specify what was Paul's thorn in the flesh. You just know that if we did know Paul's thorn in the flesh, people would say, I have the same thorn as Paul had. <laughs> and I'm practically a super apostle just like him. You know what that means? I'm suffering in the same manner that he is, because that's just what we're like, what people are like, I should say, just looking for a way to one-up, but we don't know what it was. But more importantly, because we don't know precisely what the thorn in the flesh was, that we can have a broader application because physical ailments are a reality of life. We suffer through all kinds of sicknesses and diseases and, and injuries. We have physical ailments some people more than others. And God wants to show us that he can use those ailments without us getting so stuck on what the struggle is. Let's notice some things about the thorn in the flesh since we want to learn what the right response to a thorn in the flesh really is. I see here that the thorn in the flesh is from Satan. That this suffering is sent to, to beat, to buffet, to, to beat Paul away from the Lord, to cause him to be downtrodden and discouraged. It's a weapon of Satan. Do you see that about the thorn in the flesh? Suffering is one of the components of Satan's craftiness. The Bible's telling us here that physical suffering can be a tool of Satan to, to beat us down. He can weaponize suffering. And we should not be ignorant of his devices. He wants to use those ailments to pull us away from God. Isn't it true that when you're suffering physically, you either draw near to the Lord or you, you pull away from the Lord? I, I've experienced both. And, and Satan, he wants to use that thorn to, to drive you away, to, to push you down. Now, His whole goal is to use suffering, in this case, physical suffering, some kind of ailment, some kind of disease, to embitter us against the one who is really good. Please hear that, that God wants to use the physical to draw us near to him, not not cause us to be sick or injured necessarily, right? Although God can strike somebody with sickness. Here we're saying like, God wants to pull you in Satan wants you to blame. He wants you to shake your fist at God. He wants you to become embittered at the only one who is truly 
the good gift giver. This is one of the wedges that Satan uses. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that all physical ailments are directly from Satan. We suffer from sickness and disease and injury because we live in a sinful world. We are sinful individually, and we live in a world of sin, and sin brings death. But it is also true that Satan tempted even the garden to sin in the first place. So he introduced sin, did he not? And what was his goal? What is his goal? It's to use that suffering to separate us from God, to inflict suffering in this world, and then ultimately to use that suffering and our sin to separate us from the Lord and unto eternal destruction. So the broader, in the broader sense, physical ailments are from Satan because he introduced sin, sin causes death, disease, separation. But it's also true that sometimes the devil sends sickness and disease directly. Isn't that true? Job had boils from head to toe, and they were straight from Satan. Didn't Satan directly go after Simon Peter, even though it wasn't with a physical ailment? We know there are times when Satan says, that's my target right there. I'm going to get that person the Lord says, said this to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. So understanding that physical ailments are either indirectly from Satan because of sin, because of our decision to sin, or they're directly from Satan. But even though Suffering is either directly or indirectly from Satan. It is used by God for good. What Satan intended for evil, God uses for good. So the thorn in the flesh did not stop Paul from serving, correct? In fact, it furthered Paul's service. It was from Satan, but the Lord used it in his life in a mighty way to keep him on track. This physical ailment what did it do in him? It kept him really dependent, and it kept him full of humility. He didn't think he was really something great, even though God did a lot of great things through him, because he was physically suffering. And even though that suffering wasn't from God, God used it to keep Paul in the mindset and the heart condition that he wanted to be. Paul was used so much even though he wasn't healthy. So his service was not the result of him being healthy, was it? In fact, in some ways, his service was the result of him being sick. It was God using his suffering. So what's the right response to our physical ailments? What's the right response to your thorn in the flesh? The one that isn't going away realize that it's from Satan, either indirectly or directly, and that it's there to beat you down and drive you away from the Lord. Next, realize that God will use it for good, even though Satan intended it for evil, that we would not be exalted beyond on measure. Our sickness and injury can keep us humble. The Word of God says this, that you should humble yourself 
in the sight of the Lord, and in due time, he will exalt you. We're always ready for that due time, like, Lord, I'm ready to be lifted up. But the word says that he works humility in us, and when the time is right, not according to us, according to God, he, he lifts us up, not for ourselves, but for his glory. Next, the right response is, don't make yourself out to be Job. Have you considered my servant, Eddie? I mean, just the sound of it is like, you hear people talk about being Job, and really, I, I've never been okay with it. And I've had a lot of people tell me that they identify with Job, and I'm saying you should identify with him, but don't try to make yourself out to be Job, because that means you think God's bragging about you in heaven. And if he is, then you shouldn't point out that he's bragging about you in heaven, right? Because that would be the opposite purpose of the thorn in the flesh. The thorn in the flesh is meant to keep us dependent and humble. And if we say, have you considered my, my servant, me? Then we're saying, look, it's, now the thorn is there to build me up, right? It should be enough for us, and it is enough for us to say that his grace is sufficient. In every single trial, there is a temptation to not trust God, isn't there? Every time you go through a struggle, whether it's a physical struggle or not, there's a temptation attached to that trial to not trust God. Look, lean on your own understanding. Don't trust the Lord in this. And when it comes to our bodies breaking down, being sick, falling apart, being injured, staying injured, staying sick, when we've asked multiple times, we'll learn about that. But I want you to see that Paul's thorn in the flesh was used more than his vision of heaven. Isn't that what the scriptures are telling us? Now, I'd rather have the vision of heaven if I could pick. At the same time, look at what God did through his life, not because he had an exalted revelation of the heavenlies, but because he had the thorn in the flesh. And the Lord told him, no, you're going you're gonna to keep that thorn in the flesh. So the right response, recognize this from Satan, Know that God will use it for good. Don't make yourself out to be Job. In every trial, there's a temptation to not trust God. Let him work. Verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Does a lack of healing always mean a, a lack of faith? When a person doesn't get healed, can we say that we know for sure that the reason they didn't get healed is because they didn't believe in the power of God enough? This would be the sixth question. God doesn't heal everyone. That's pretty obvious, right? And faith is a factor in God's decision to heal. We can say that. Jesus said, your faith has made you well. But people have taken that to mean that our faith actually controls God. And that's not true. That if we have enough faith, we can actually make God's mind up for him. That we can make his will be according to our will. That's a lie. There are those who propagate the idea that if you're not healed, it means you don't have enough faith. Now, look at what the word says here in verse 8. Paul pleaded with the Lord. He prayed. 
over and over, right? Was he a man of faith? Was he a man that the Lord used to heal people, even raise people from the dead? He prayed for them and they were healed. But when he prayed for himself regarding the thorn in his flesh, God said no. So it obviously wasn't a matter of him not having faith. It was a matter of the will of God. We always pray according to his will, knowing that he has the power, asking him, petitioning him. Lord, if it is your will, show your power. God might tell you yes. He might tell you no. He might tell you wait. But it would be wrong to say that we know that God didn't heal because faith was lacking. The word's very clear here. We already read the beginning of verse 9. Just such a great answer. Look at what the Lord said to Paul. He gave him an answer to his prayer. My grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. The seventh and the last question is, do you believe that his grace is sufficient and that his power is perfect? Do you, do you believe that? Because the answer to the prayer is right here. My favor towards you is more than enough to carry you through this physical trial. My love, my provision for you, my care for you, my presence, it's all you need to not just get through this weakness, but to see great power through this weakness. Now, obviously, there was a desire to have the thorn in the flesh taken away, right? Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have asked over and over again, right? Initially, what would you hope to hear about your thorn in the flesh from God? Yes, I'll take your thorn in the flesh away. You wouldn't ask the Lord if you didn't want him to remove what was ailing you, right? So it's not, it's not wrong to ask him at all. In fact, we learn from the book of James that sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. So he did ask. But I want you to see that Paul wrote this looking back, didn't he? He's far in the future, but he's now looking back at his request, and he sees God's hand at work since then. He sees the grace. He sees the power. And what he's going to write in the next couple of verses that we won't have the opportunity to study tonight is reflective that he's already experienced that grace, that sufficient grace that God gave to him. He's already experienced that power, that perfect power. But how about our initial request? You're there tonight, you're there today, and you're asking God, Lord, I take this from me. I, I hate it. I hate feeling like this. I hate experiencing this. Lift it from me, God. Deliver me. But you haven't yet fully tasted of the sufficiency of the grace of God for you in that situation. Now, I'm not saying you haven't tasted of his grace to save you, because if you're a child of God, you know his grace. He pulled you up out of the pit and made you, made you free and made you clean. But when you hear the answer from God, that you're not going to be well, or you hear the words, wait, do you have the faith in God to believe that his grace is enough? That his power is going to be made perfect 
even in the very weakness that you're asking him to take away from you. There isn't a bigger grace than the grace that he gave to you when he saved you from your sins. It's not a meager grace at all, isn't it? Now, believe that there will be a time when you look back at your request and even your physical ailment and you say, look, I'm still ailing, but look at the abundant grace that God gave me so that I could shoulder this because I, I could have never done that without him. I would have just been crushed. He gave me an ample grace, a sufficient grace. And look at the power, the perfect power that he illustrated through my life. A powerful person, a person who's not suffering physically, a person who's not hurting physically can be misunderstood a lot because people think, well, look at them. They're, they're, they're powerful in, them, in and of themselves. They don't need God. But isn't it true that in our weakness, the Lord is glorified because it's pretty obvious that it's not us, but it's him doing that work. But when we first pray and when we pray over and over again, it's hard because we have to put our trust in him and say, I know that if the answer is no, your grace is sufficient. Okay, Lord, if I won't be healed, help me to see the grace that you've already given to me, that's already available to me. Do you believe that? Because you've already given it to me, but I'm not seeing it. What will happen if we do not see the grace that's already been given to us? Well, we will be mired in self-pity. We'll become grumblers and complainers. And worse yet, We'll get bitter against God. And that's a misplaced bitterness completely. Instead of saying, Lord, if you tell me no, I know you're going to give me the grace. Even now, you're going to carry me through and then make your power perfect in this situation. You know how weak I am. Do you pray that way? <laughs> I do. God, you know I'm weak. Show me your mercy. Show me your power. I'm just acknowledging the emotion that comes before the experience of that grace. Paul looking back and saying, the Lord has met me and given me so much. You're a child of faith. Now walk by faith. His promises are perfect. You will not be disappointed. Our wills, my will, your will, it's not like God's will. We we like to seek the easiest path. Even, even though we grow in the Lord and we mature in the Lord, we still find ourselves just going to whatever the easiest thing is. Lord, I want, I, do you pray for this by yourself? I want the smoothest life possible. I, I want the best circumstances possible. I want the least amount of sickness and struggle. I want the least amount of turmoil relationally. I want safety physically. Lord, that's my will that I wouldn't have suffering, that I wouldn't have trial. And the Lord is after an eternal good, and he knows that it won't be accomplished in me if my life is picture perfect. He knows that I'll be a spoiled brat, that I'll be a baby, that I won't trust him, that I'll just have words that swell from me, but I won't really have a life that depends upon him. And so he uses that which Satan intended to be terrible in my life and in yours, to teach us to be dependent upon him. 
So if this evening you have a thorn in the flesh and you don't know the answer yet, or maybe you do know the answer, the Lord has said, this is, this is where you're going to be. This is, this is where you are. Doesn't the Lord provide something to us way beyond? It's not as though he removes and makes everything circumstantially better, but his grace is sufficient. I know that. Let me have more faith to believe that, Lord. I, I've seen your perfect power in broken vessels. Um, let me hold on to what you're telling me. Lord, I, I know how you, you work. Your word says the way you are and what you do. I thank you for doing everything so much better than we do it, Lord, for not submitting your will to ours. I really do, Lord, pray that there would be a point in our lives where we could say that we, we glory in our infirmities because we know that your grace is, is being poured out abundantly, that we would even boast in our infirmities because we know that your power is being displayed. Lord, we do long for the day when we'll be there before your throne, perfect with your, with your goodness and with your cleansing, Lord. We do so desire to be away from these tents and into our perfect dwellings. At the same time, Lord, may it really be that to live is Christ, to die is gain, that we would live for you with every beat of our hearts. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.